Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. All right, into our uh, message, we're going to deal with uh, Revelation chapter 3 today, the letter to the church at Sardis. And, uh, but before I get there, I want to tie up a couple of loose ends from last week's message. Last week's message, we looked at uh, the letter to the church at Pergamum and the letter to the church at Thyatira. And one of the really big issues we saw in those letters is Jesus said, uh, no compromise when it comes to eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. You'll remember that. We went through a, a whole thing. And we talked about how, as a Christian, when you've received Jesus into your heart, uh, there is no participating in any ceremony or ritual or religious exercise that involves trying to connect to another spirit or worship for another God. We have given ourselves to Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen? Okay, so we looked at that. No compromise for that. Uh, Even if we bless other people, we have freedom of religion. I bless other people to practice their religion, but we just can't participate with them because we've given our hearts to another. All right? But out of that, a number of questions came up. I had some really good questions during the week, and I had some really good questions right after the message. And right after the 11 a.m. service last week, uh, one guy asked me, he said, what about halal meat? Okay? And I thought to myself, wow, great question, people are thinking. How many of you have ever heard of halal meat or know what halal meat is? Okay? So a bunch of you. Uh, Halal is an Arabic word. It simply means permissible. Okay? It just means permissible. And halal meat is meat that is permissible for a Muslim to eat, okay? So, uh, for example, Muslims are not allowed to eat uh, pork, like anything from a pig, they're not allowed to eat, so that would not be halal, okay? But now, even if you go to an animal that is okay for a Muslim to eat, let's say, you know, like, you know, steak, beef, uh, uh, lamb, chicken, that sort of thing, in order for the meat to be halal, okay, it has to be slaughtered and prepared in a certain way. Now, I won't go through every one of the steps, but the basic thing is, uh, in order for it to be halal, to kill the animal, let's say you're killing a, a sheep, the throat, it must be killed, whether chicken, sheep, cow, whatever, it has to be killed by the slitting of the throat. Any other way of killing it, it's not halal, it's not permissible for a Muslim to eat, okay? Uh, not only does it have to be, have the throat slit, in some cases they say it has to be even slit in the right direction, I think from east to west, I'm not sure if that's always or just some, but uh, the other thing is it has to be killed by an adult Muslim, and the, the person who's doing the slaughtering must speak the name of Allah, some kind of a blessing with Allah, over the animal as they, as they kill it, okay? And so, uh, again, so I had some questions last week, and people were really thinking, because halal meat has become uh, really big business in North America, because... Uh, if you want to sell meat to Muslims, it has to be halal. And I was actually, uh, I actually looked it up this week because I've never paid attention in the grocery store. And I, I haven't actually physically looked here in Steinbeck. I'm assuming there's probably halal meat here. I don't know. But if you go to, you know, anywhere else in North America or Canada, if you go into Superstore or Sobeys or Walmart or pretty much anywhere, tons and tons of places, you can go and there's a halal meat section or there's halal meat available to you, Okay. So, great question, is it okay for a Christian to eat halal meat? Well, let's look at, a, let's uh, just review one of our passages from last week, and then let's ask this question. Uh, Revelation 2, verse 14, let's remind ourselves, the letter of the church of Pergamum, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So, uh, there, 
right off the top, it would seem like, okay, it's not okay, it's probably not okay to eat halal meat. And we saw also in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first half, Paul talks about not sharing the table of the Lord with the table of demons, okay? However, if we keep reading in 1 Corinthians 10, it's like Paul contradicts himself and starts to confuse things. And I, and I had questions about 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 8 during the week as well. So I love it. You guys are really engaging with the, with the Bible. Um, let's go and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 25. This is just two verses after Paul has said, absolutely no compromise. You cannot share the table of demons and the table of the Lord. Okay? And let's look at what it says here. It says in verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Now you say, what does this have to do with halal? What does this have to do with eating food sacrificed to idols? Well, uh, the issue is, um, here's what would happen. So in, in the Roman Empire, they would have all these different feasts where they would sacrifice things to idols. So you would put a piece of meat to the idol and you know, put whatever incense in front of it and pray your prayers, do the various things. In the morning, you would get up and the meat would still be there. You know why? Because the idol can't eat, just in case you were wondering, okay? So the idol's not alive. <laughs> that wasn't a trick question. So the meat's still there. So what do you do with the meat? It's still there. Well, they weren't as wealthy as we are, and thus they weren't as wasteful. They didn't just throw the meat out. What they would do is they would bring back the meat to the butcher or whatever. Now, there's probably some hygiene things there that this would bother us, never mind religious reasons, but they would bring back the meat to the, you know, the shop or whatever they got it. I don't know, did they sell it back? Did they give it back? Whatever the case, they would bring it back, and then the shopkeeper, the butcher, whatever, would just resell the meat in with all the other meat. So you as a Christian would go in there and you would see, you know, you got your T-bones, your ribeyes, all this sort of stuff, right? I don't know what kind of cuts they had back then, but whatever the case, you're in there looking at the meat, but you don't know some of this meat because, I mean, in, in some of those big cities, I mean, on every, any given night, you know, the night before, you could have had a whole bunch of idolatrous feasts happening. You don't know which of this meat is been, has been sacrificed to an idol and which has not. So now some of these Christians have gotten a little bit nervous because they know Paul teaches very clearly the Apostle John, all the Apostles, Jesus, teach very clearly no compromise on this issue, you know, the eating food sacrificed to idols. So now they're going in here and they start to wonder, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, some of this might be demon meat, right? Like, what if, what if this one, I, like, and you, you know, you try to do listening prayers, is it this one, is it that one? But they, they, start to, they start to ask questions. So these Christians now are asking questions of the shopkeeper. Where did you get this meat? Where did you get this meat? Okay? Did this come from some pagan ritual or feast or something like that? Or, or where did you get this meat? And they're asking Paul this question too. Now Paul gives what we would think is almost seems like a contradictory answer because he has just in the rest of 1 Corinthians 10 and of course as we saw in Revelation and, and in these other places, no compromise, don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Now he says, just eat it. Just eat it. Doesn't matter. It, it, could, have been in the mo it could have been involved in the most bizarre pagan ritual the night before uh, you know, demonic stuff, doesn't matter. You just, the next day, you can just eat it. And then he gives a reason. He says, uh, verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, Jesus owns it all. Now, wait a minute. I mean, people could use that kind of argument to, that's how Christians, I mean, we just saw in Revelation last week. That's the kind of arguments Christians can use to say, hey, it doesn't matter if I participate in this idolatrous feast. So is this, what's going on here? Paul, are you contradicting yourself? Then he goes on to say this, verse 27. 
If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Now, here's what you have to understand. When you read unbelievers in this text compared to what we know of unbelievers here in Canada are, are two quite different things. Most of the unbelievers we know here in Canada are literally that they are unbelievers. They don't believe in anything. No, never mind. They don't just, it's not just that they don't believe in Jesus. They don't believe in anything, really. Okay? So it's very unlikely that any unbeliever's house you would go to here in Canada is going to have idols in their home or that they'll, you know, pray over the meat or do any weird stuff. When Paul's talking about unbelievers in Corinth, they're all pagans. They're unbelievers in Jesus, but they're believers in all kinds of other stuff. So Paul knows when you go to their house for lunch, I mean, you don't know. That food could have been sitting in front of the idol with like little incense sticks in it for the last five hours. You don't know. You don't know what they prayed over that thing. They could have cast spells on that thing. You don't know. And Paul says, just go to their house and eat. No worries. Okay? Which is why, by the way, last week I talked about, I said, uh, if, I'm, if, I'm, if a Muslim or a Hindu or someone would invite me over to their house to have food, I would have no problem with it. And if they prayed a prayer to their God before the meal, I would have no problem with that. As long as I'm not involved. Like, I'm not going to involve myself in any participation in anything. Like, they, they're, they're going to know that I'm not praying to their God. And I'm not going to worship their God. And I'm not going to do anything that looks like I'm worshiping their God. But if they want to invite me over, I don't mind going over there based on this verse. And if they pray over the meat, I'm okay with that. I would expect that just like if they came to my house, I'm going to pray to Jesus right in front of them. Um, but so I'm okay with that. And that's, this verse is why I'm okay with that. But now you say, well, how is this not a contradiction? How can 1 Corinthians 10 say, you can't share the table of the Lord or the table of demons? How can Revelation over and over again, Jesus say, no tolerance policy don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Don't even tolerate teaching that allows you to do that. Are, are these two things contradictory? And here's the thing you have to understand. They're not contradictory, okay? Here's what's happening, okay? When Jesus in Revelation and Paul in the first half of 1 Corinthians 10 is saying, don't eat food sacrificed to idols, it's not the food they're concerned with. It's the ritual. It's the, it's the festivities. It's the ceremony. It's the acts of worship that are happening. That's the problem. Let me relate it again. Let's stop here for just a moment. Let's relate it again to our faith. Let's talk about communion for a moment. Okay? Communion. When we take communion, the act of communion, when we all, you know, we're here at a prayer summit in our church's case, and, and now we take the bread together prayerfully, and we're literally doing it as an act of worship of Jesus. We don't invite an unbeliever to come and share that communion with us because it's not the food that's the issue. It's, it's an act of worship, and you're not a believer. So, this is not for you. This is for us to do to Jesus. But there's nothing magic in the food itself. Let's say I took the leftover crackers or bread home after communion. And by the way, I don't do this. So in case you're wondering, oh, that's how he gets, you know, cheap stuff, whatever, blah, blah, he just takes it. No. I don't take the leftover communion crackers home. I don't take the leftover juice home. But let's say I did take the leftover crackers home and the leftover juice home. I'm on my way home. And maybe I meet a homeless person, or maybe it's just a, a teenager who's growing and just desperately needs food in the next five minutes or something. And they just, and I, so now let's say I give this person some of the leftover bread from communion. Have they just taken communion? No. Because there's nothing magical about the bread. Am I, am I not right? There's nothing magical about the bread or the juice itself. It's the act of when we do it together as an act of worship to Jesus. It's that when we do it together, it's this spiritual act which is important and which is powerful, and Jesus sees it as worship. 
But there's no, nothing magic about the bread. After we're done the, the little ceremony of, of communion, it's just bread and it's just juice. That's all it is. And that's Paul's argument here um, and Jesus' argument in Revelation is you can't participate in anything where, the, where it's almost like communion. They're eating this feast to this God. It's like an act of worship to this other God. Absolutely no tolerance. We have given our lives to Jesus. We must be faithful to him and to him alone. Just like in a marriage, you're faithful to your wife and your wife alone. When you give your life to Jesus, it's him and him alone. Now, no, as a Christian, we cannot participate in any kind of spiritual practice, any kind of spiritual practice that seeks to connect to other spirits or seeks to worship another God. Now, by the way, we always need to differentiate between spiritual practices and cultural practices. There's nothing wrong with you know, cultural things that have nothing to do with worshiping another God. There's no problem with being involved in cultural things, but any kind of spiritual practice that's seeking to connect to another spirit or seeking to worship another God, Christians can't be a part of. But in terms of the food itself, no biggie. Jesus owns it all. It's all his meat. It's all his food. It's all his stuff. You want to eat the leftovers after? Paul says, go for it. Okay? So now, let's bring this back to the halal question. Okay? The halal question. Let's say this coming summer, and I may it come quickly. Um, but this summer, you're cooking on the barbecue. You've got some, oh, so juicy steaks on there. And there's, amen. I heard someone say, amen. They got to be a little bit pink on the inside, ladies. I know some of you ladies like them brown, but they got to be a little pink, a little juicy, right? They got to be juicy. Now you're going to take these steaks off the barbie and you're going to bring them in and serve them to your guests. And as you walk in the house, you just notice, you know, the crumpled up packaging, you just kind of threw to the side when you took the steaks out. <gasps> I accidentally bought halal meat. Okay. What are you going to do with that steak? Are you going to throw it? Eat it. That's right. You don't throw it out. If you're thinking of throwing it out, you bring it to my house and I will eat your halal steaks, okay? <laughs> it's no problem. That's Jesus' meat. Now, don't get involved in, you know, some Muslim or Hindu or whatever ritual to their God. No. But if there's meat and you happen to eat, I mean, I'm not suggesting we all go out and buy halal meat. Why would we do that? But if, but if you go to a Muslim country, if you ever go there as a missionary, or if you ever go to a Muslim country as a tourist, guess what? All the meat in the shops is going to be what? Halal. Now, you have one of two choices at that point. You can go vegetarian, or like me, you can take Paul's scripture here, and you can keep eating meat. That's what I'm going to do, okay? So don't get involved in the practice. I'm not, this is not tolerance for, for practice or worship of another god. Absolutely out. But Paul says, the meat itself, don't worry. Just, you know, if, if someone else's conscience, I mean, in the next verse, he talks about someone else's conscience, right? Verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in a sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience. It's no problem for you to eat, but for the sake of his. his. His point is, you know, maybe if a weak believer sees you eating halal meat or whatever kind of meat, and then they might think, oh, it's okay to worship the Muslim God, or they might think it's okay to participate in these other religious things. He says, well, then don't do it. You don't want to lead someone astray. But in terms of the meat itself, there's no power there. I hope, I hope that makes sense. And if not, Feel free to ask me more questions this week. I love getting those, those questions where you guys are thinking things through. All right, let's move now to Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, letter to the church in Sardis. And Jesus says this, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. And again, we just see this in letter after letter after letter. I know your works. Christianity is not just something in your head. 
It's not just something I go to church and I have something in my head. If you truly love Jesus, it's going to come out of you in certain ways. Not that you're always perfect, not that you're always happy, but you'll be able to look at a person who really loves Jesus. There's going to be generosity that comes out of that. There's going to be sacrifice. There's going to be service. There's going to be forgiveness. Not that you're perfect every day, not even close, but these are the things that are going to come out of you. Jesus says, I know your works. Your life is different, okay? Now, in this case, their life isn't different in, in a good way. Their works are not actually great. And we go to the next line. He says this, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You, you look. You have works. You have a reputation. You know, if this was a church in modern times, I would imagine a very respectable church. It's got a little bit of history to it. It's got a nice building. Maybe it's known for some nice Bible teaching. They've got some pictures of missionaries up on the bulletin board. Maybe a soup kitchen, a few things like that. You have a reputation for being alive. But you know, this doesn't just apply to churches. This also applies to people. You've been a Christian for lots of years. You carry around a nice-looking Bible. You don't swear. You don't do anything overtly bad. And you believe all the right things about Jesus. You have a reputation for being alive. You look very respectable. But you are dead. It says this in verse 2. Wake up. Wake up. And strengthen what it remains and is about to die. Look at this. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So you have some good-looking works. You've, you've got some pictures of missionaries. You carry a Bible in your hand. You know, that church has some decent Bible teaching. They're maybe the flagship for their, for their denomination. They're, they're, a, they're a very safe, good reputation church or person. And they've got some of these works, but Jesus says, your works are not complete. How? Why are they not complete? I'll tell you why. Because they're just on the surface. You've got a few works, but if you drill down deep, there's nothing new or fresh there. There's no deep, deep love for Jesus. Like, these are people that have become very comfortable. They believe in Jesus, and that's enough. They totally believe in Jesus. They're nice people. They're good people. But if you dig down in their life a bit, they're just really just living life. And Jesus is mostly just an add-on. They go to church and they believe right things, but there's no deep abiding you know, we're taking risks for Jesus. We're sacrificing. We're serving him. Our life is all about him. I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. They've gotten comfortable. They've gotten safe. This is a church that doesn't stand as salt in a community. You know, salt burns a little bit. When a church is on fire for Jesus, it will rub the community the wrong way sometimes because they're going to stand up for righteousness and holiness. But this is a church that has just gotten safe. They don't stand for anything. You have a reputation for being alive, but your works are not complete in the sight of my God. And so he says this at the beginning of verse 2. He says, wake up. Wake up. You know what I love about that? First of all, Jesus wouldn't tell us to do anything that we couldn't actually do. If he says to us, wake up, it's actually possible to wake up. The other thing I like about it is it's not some kind of nebulous emotional state it's something you can do. You can actually do something this week. It's not just listening to a message or reading a passage that says, wake up. Oh, that was a nice sermon about waking up. And maybe I will wake up someday. No, no. Wake up means I can, I can go home. I can change something in my life this week. And I can wake up. I can do something to grow in my love for the Lord. Now, 
Of course, in this passage, nowhere in this passage does Jesus give a single specific thing that you can do to wake up. And you say, why is that? And I'll tell you why it is. It's because anybody who's actually desperate enough to wake up will figure it out. It's just like when, uh, when a young couple, when, when, when two young people fall in love, you don't have to tell them, here's what you need to do to show your love to the other person. They're desperate enough and they figure it out. Isn't it true? I mean, when I fell in love with LaDawn, nobody had to tell me, do this, this, or that. I just went nuts. I just went crazy. I was doing all kinds of stuff. I was trying anything that came to mind, but I'm going to show her I like her, okay? If you're desperate to wake up for Jesus, you'll figure it out. You will. But you won't just stay the way you are now. When you first became a Christian, you were on fire for the Lord. Some of you had an experience of that. You didn't just do nothing and you were on fire for the Lord. There was all kinds of things you did in those early days to be on fire for the Lord. Because you were desperate. You were seeking after him. And you didn't just leave it up to a feeling in your head. You, you did things to pursue him. So Jesus doesn't give us a specific. However, I'm going to give you five things. Just briefly, I want to, I want to look at five things. They're all in the Bible. This is not a formula. This is not a legalistic bunch of rules. You have to do all these things. If you take them in any of way, those ways, they'll be death to you, not life. But these are all things that people in the Bible did and that Christians throughout history have done. Practical things you can do. It's not just, oh, I heard a sermon about waking up. Hopefully I'll wake up someday. No, no. You can go home and you can make a choice to do things to wake yourself up spiritually. And here are a few things that are in Scripture and that Christians have done throughout history as ways of stirring their passion up for Jesus. One is, we've been talking about all month, is fasting. Okay? Fasting. There is something about being physically hungry. It's so, such a drastic measure that when you're physically hungry and you seek after the Lord, there is something. And, and when you're not just surviving, you know, sometimes you do your first fast and it's just about surviving. That's great. It's like you're learning that you can do it. That's awesome. It's like when a kid first learns to drive their bike without training wheels. They're not really enjoying the biking so much as they're just figuring out, wow, this is cool. But when you get to a place where you put aside, you know, this physical appetite things and you say, I just want to love you, Jesus. Not as a legalistic thing, not as a thing you're doing all the time, but I want to take some time and I want to just seek after you. This is one of the ways you wake yourself up in the Lord. Okay? Another one is repent of any sin in your life and tell someone else. Do you have any situations in your business or finances or life where you've cheated someone or lied or not had integrity or not paid a debt or a bill or something? There is something so powerful. That's part of the reason some of us have such blankets of apathy over our soul is it's a blanket of, of unconfessed sins from our past. There is something so powerful. Oh, and I could tell you stories from my life where you go back and you repent and you make something right. And it's so embarrassing. Oh, it's humiliating sometimes. I got to tell you, oh, sorry, I, a few years ago and I didn't pay you and, and you're, I'm so embarrassed. I'm just sorry. And when you go back and you say sorry to someone, what it does in your spirit, oh, on the far end when you're done, you're going to experience a joy and lightness from the Lord. But this is one, we, one of the ways we wake ourselves up. Or you have you know, some character issue in your life that you've just had there for years and you say, I'm going to attack this. I'm going to tell someone else about it. I'm going to get accountability and I'm going to work on this. I'm going to work on, you know, 
nagging or exaggerating or lying or anger, whatever it is, I'm going to work on this for, for, the, for my love for the Lord and for glory to Him. And you start to seek that. Or you've got a really embarrassing past, hidden or present sin that you've never told anyone about. And you're like, it's too shameful. I can never tell anyone. I can never tell anyone. It's exactly that sin. If you tell someone, you are going to experience such life and forgiveness and mercy from Jesus. So repenting. What kind of actions can a Christian take to wake up? But you have to do something. It's not just sitting there and going, you know, I feel really apathetic to the Lord and I don't know how to change it. Do something. Jesus says, wake up. You can do something about it. You can make a choice this week and you can begin to wake up. And you can make another choice next week and you can carry on waking up. Another, a third one is giving. Generous giving to the kingdom and personal acts of generosity. One of the biggest reasons why Christians' hearts get cold is because we've subtly fallen in love with our money. And Jesus talks about this in Matthew 6, 19 to 24. He says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Let me just read that again. Do not, he's warning, for our joy. He's not a kill joy. He knows that storing up treasures on earth is only going to bring you more stress and lack of joy. He says, do not, Lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now look at this. This is Jesus speaking, not me. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. That's where your passion's going to be. Then he says this, No one can serve two masters for he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, let me just say something that I always say whenever I talk about money. And I've preached this many times before. It is not bad to have money. It's not bad to have lots of money. I can show you many, many scriptures, Old Testament and New, of very, very wealthy people who were called friends of God and servants of God and men after God's own heart and people in the New Testament as well who had lots of money. It's not bad to have money, okay? The question when it comes to what do you love more, God or money, is not how much money do you have, it's how much money do you give. If you love Jesus, there will be a continual stream of generosity. Now, that stream, in terms of dollar amounts, for one person who has much less money, might be much smaller. You know, in some countries where they're very, very poor, you don't see the generosity in terms of large dollar amounts given. You see it in terms of bringing people into their home and just feeding them, and that's a huge cost. But you will see generosity. Giving is part of what comes out of a heart that's in love with Jesus. So one of the ways you want to stir up, you want to do something, you say, I don't know how to get this blanket of apathy off my soul. You know what's one of the great ways to do it? Just give a faith gift to the kingdom of God. Or do personal acts of generosity. Now, again, the, no, the number amount doesn't matter. For one person, it's not a faith gift until it's 100000 bucks. For another person, it's a, it's a faith gift already at $100. The amount is not what matters, but you want to stir your heart for Jesus? Let go of the money thing and give to Jesus. It could be personal acts of generosity. Give sacrificially to help someone out in need. Just surprise them or do it anonymously and see what happens in your heart. Give a gift to the kingdom, a large gift to the kingdom. See what God does. And let Jesus work in your heart. Wake up, he says. Wake up. 
There are things you can do this week. Wake yourself up, Jesus says to the church at Sardis. The fourth thing you can do is take an evangelism risk. Tell somebody about Jesus. Do you know that people who take risks to tell other people about Jesus grow in their own love for Jesus? People who take risks in telling others about Jesus. I can tell you sometimes in my life, I remember when we were in Korea and we were teaching English there and we had this one English coworker there and everybody else was Korean. I mean, they could speak a bit of English, but it was a little more difficult. And I remember it just, I just had this thing on my heart for a few months. I kept telling it on, I got to tell this guy about Jesus. But it was, it, it was kind of this weird thing because it was just, it was just him and us. And I didn't know how to do it. So I prayed and prayed and uh, I started hanging out with him every week so, to get to know him. And then I'll just never forget the one time we were, we were on a drive somewhere and heading out somewhere and I just started talking to, to him about Jesus. And at first it was scary because I knew he wasn't, didn't believe in Jesus at all. And then we ended up having this two-hour conversation. And then after that, every week we'd get together and I was inviting him to church and he never gave his life to Christ, but later on I gave him a book and we kept in contact for a little bit after he was gone. But I'll tell you the joy in my own life when you, there's something about our faith that until it gets turned outwards, until you're reaching out to someone who doesn't know Jesus and taking risks, um, then your faith doesn't feel, but when you go out, it explodes in joy. So take risks. Tell people about Jesus at school, at work. Take risks, build relationships, and talk to people about Jesus. You are the one who's going to grow in your love for Jesus. And fifthly, obedience. There's maybe a prompting that's been in your heart for a while to do this or to do that, to, to talk to someone about Jesus or to give something or to repent or to make something right. When those promptings are there, if you've got a prompting that's been nagging you the last month or a couple of weeks or whatever, just take a step of faith and obey. Just go through with the prompting and watch Jesus come alive in your heart. Obedience is a key to coming alive. But whatever the case is, when Jesus says wake up, this is not something that just happens to you because you came to church and heard a message about waking up. It's something that happens when you go out and you make some choices to wake up. Well, we keep reading Revelation 3, verse 3. He says, remember then what you received and heard. And I love that word, remember. It's so important that we see this. You know, so many Christians today are into something new. I want something new. I want new teaching. I want new worship. I want new experience. I want new, 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 new. Because there's always a buzz with something new. So my Christian life feels a little stale. I need something new. I need to go somewhere new. I need to experience something new. I need to hear something new and innovative. And what John says here, what Jesus says through John is, you don't need anything new. Everything you need for Christian life, you already know. If, you would do, if we would do a tenth of what we know to do from here, we would be so full of joy and life in the Lord, we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. Remember, you don't need anything new. Go back and repent. Go back and forgive. Go back and give. Go back and tell someone about Jesus. Go back and pray and fast. You don't need anything new. Remember. And then he says this, keep it. The Christian life is not about knowing so much. I mean, yes, there's knowing. There's things you have to know in order to be a Christian. But we already know lots of stuff. It's not knowing that makes you alive. It's doing. You know these things, Jesus says in the Gospels. Now do them. That is the path of blessing. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, he says, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And then verse 4, we get the encouragement. So we're going, oh, yes. Encouragement. He says this, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, 
People who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You know what I love about this? He's not talking to everyone. Do you know that not, there's lots of people here listening to this message right here today, and Jesus is not rebuking or exhorting you. You're already doing it. You're seeking after him, and he's not asking you to add more things to your life. See, some people just always feel guilty. There's some people in the Christian life, they just always feel guilty. So they hear this message, and they go, i got to wake up. And so they add more things to their life to wake up. And then tomorrow, when they're doing their devotional reading, they happen to be reading this passage, and they'll repent again and add even more stuff. And every time they come across this verse or other verses, they'll add more and more and more because they always think Jesus is talking to them that they're not doing enough. Here's the thing. There's a bunch of people at this church in Sardis, and there's a bunch of people here in this church now. You're already following Jesus, and you love him dearly. And you know what he's saying to you today? I don't want you to do a single more thing. And he says, I just want you to keep going. I want to encourage you. There's a few there in Sardis, he says who have not soiled their garments. Don't feel guilty just because there's, because some in the church Jesus is speaking to need to wake up. And then he says this, the one who conquers. You know what conquering is? It's getting to the end. Conquering is finishing. Conquering is not, hey, you had a couple of hot spots in your life after you gave your life to Jesus, or you had a couple of times when you were, you know, you went through some tough things in your life and you got close to Jesus. Conquering is I kept myself awake. I kept myself passionate for Jesus to the end. And the reason conquering is so hard is because our hearts, our human hearts, naturally tend towards complacency. I I wish my heart naturally tended to just be passionate for Jesus. Because then I could just let it go and be passionate for Jesus. The fact of the matter is, just like a fire, a campfire, if you sit around a campfire, it doesn't naturally keep itself going. It naturally burns out. You have to do something. You have to put wood in it to keep it going. And the same is true of your walk with Jesus. If you think, oh, I, got, I asked Jesus into my heart. I had a wonderful experience with him at camp 25 years ago, and I've been coasting on that ever since. That's like a camp, that campfire has long gone out. I'm not saying you've lost your salvation. What I'm meaning is you've lost your passion. Jesus is saying, wake up. You've got to add wood to the fire and you have to continually add wood to the fire and you never stop adding wood to the fire until Jesus returns. At which point it will become automatic and that'll be amazing. But until then, nothing is at automatic. We must keep being watchful. Keep being watchful. In fact, if we go back to verse 2, wake up. The Greek word there for wake up is Gregorio. It literally means watchfulness. In the tense of the verb is you have to keep being watchful. Each one of us is like we have a campfire in our soul and we have to watch over it daily, weekly, and monthly to keep stoking it to make sure that we are fresh in our love and our walk with Jesus. Keep being watchful to the very end. And the ones who keep stoking the fire to the end are the ones Jesus is going to reward. They're the ones Jesus is going to reward. Well, the question then is, how, how do we keep stoking the fire? And this is where I'm going to end the message. I'm going to, I'm going to show you three things. How do we keep being watchful over that fire in our soul? And this is where I actually, I think we need each other. I really believe in this part, we need each other. We need the body. We need fellowship. Because the truth of the matter is, if you're in a church that is sleepy spiritually, most likely you are going to be sleepy spiritually. I've seen this over and over and over again. 
as human beings, we just tend to kind of go to the temperature of the people around us. If you are in a cell group that is sleepy spiritually, chances are you're going to end up sleepy spiritually. If all of your Christian friends are just kind of spiritually sleepy, chances are you're going to end up spiritually sleepy. And and the reason that is is because if you're not sleepy, they're not going to like you that much. You're going to make them uncomfortable. We just tend to kind of naturally go. And so what we all need is the kind of fellowship in our lives that stirs us up to keep stoking the fires. And so, of course, that's something, you know, practically speaking here at church, at Southland, we talk about cell groups, but cell groups aren't in here. Cell groups, you, you can't find in here anywhere, you have, thou shalt be in a cell group. That's a practical thing we do to try and do the fellowship thing. But let me, t- I just want to talk to you to finish this message. I just want to show you three levels because a lot of people think, well, I'm in a cell group, so I'm getting fellowship. Let me talk to you about three different levels of fellowship. And these may or may not happen in your cell group. If they happen, great. If they don't, you might be in a cell group, but you might not be getting that much out of it. There's three different levels that fellowship that, that fellowship can operate at or that a cell group can operate at. The first one is just fellowship. This is a group that gets together, whether it be a cell or just a group of friends, and they like each other, they eat together, they talk about life, they maybe go on trips together. And you know, it's wonderful. I have no criticism for this. Not sinful at all. Not sinful. It's better than not having any fellowship. It'll make you feel like a part of the church. It'll make you feel like you have some friends. You'll have more joy in life. Uh, Just fellowship. I don't say this as as a criticism if all you have in a group is just fellowship because you already have something if you just have fellowship. Okay? Not a criticism of anyone or any group. But what I'm going to tell you is just having fellowship won't stir you up to heat in Jesus. There are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians in Canada and the U.S., maybe millions, who are in small groups. I mean, small groups is just the thing to do. If Sardis was a church today, they'd have small groups because every church in North America has small groups because we all know we need some kind of fellowship. And the fact of the matter is, many, 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 many thousands of Christians go to cell group every week, and they're not red hot on fire for Jesus. So just having fellowship is a good thing, But if you want to be hot for Jesus, it's not enough. So there's a second level of fellowship that we can have and that a cell group could have or a group of friends or whatever. It would be fellowship plus spiritual encouragement slash teaching slash prayer. This is a a group of people that gets together. It could be a cell group. And they like each other. They do things together. And that's wonderful. They're friends. That's great. And then in addition to that, they pray for each other. And they learn stuff together. So they might watch really good Bible videos. Or they might do a Bible study together. And that's really amazing. Again, no criticism here. That's not a sin. That's wonderful. Anybody who's getting together with a group of people to pray and discuss the Bible, already that's going to help you in your life. Certainly it will. Okay? But if you think having a group like that is going to keep you red hot for Jesus, you're wrong again. I would say again, there are tens of thousands of Christians in North America who go to weekly Bible studies and they aren't red hot on fire for Jesus. Why is that? You say, what more can we do? I'm just making an observation. Isn't it true? There's tens of thousands. Many of us have been in groups like this and they're wonderful. You get together, you learn things about the Bible and you love each other. I'm not saying they're bad. They're wonderful. But the rest of the week, 
You could just be as apathetic as anything, and, and you're not even a bad person. It's not that you want to be apathetic. You just, what else am I going to do? When Jesus says, wake up, that's not enough to do it either. You say, well, why on earth is it? What more could there be than fellowship plus learning from the Bible together? You want to know why fellowship plus Bible study or good DVD or whatever, good teaching, you want to know why that isn't enough to wake me up? I can go to a small group every single week and we can discuss this, the weekly sermon. We can, we can discuss the, the, uh, the, some video or a Bible study. We can watch a great video teaching series. We can, I can do that every single week and I never have to open up about me and nobody has to know the fact that I haven't talked to Jesus all week the rest of the week. I can just hide. My relationship with Jesus can be as stale as a bowl of milk that's been out on the, on the kitchen counter for two or three weeks. That's not fresh, but you don't know that because, hey, let's get together. That was a great video. Let's talk about what we learned. And nobody, I never have to be accountable for the fact that I haven't had any kind of touch from Jesus in a month. My relationship with him is a month old. In some cases for people, it's six months old. In some cases, it's even more than that. I haven't had a touch for Jesus in years in some cases, but they've been going to small group every week. It's not enough to get, learning is great, but learning doesn't stop me from getting stale. So again, this isn't bad. That's not a, that I am not criticizing number two. It's a wonderful thing to have fellowship and have teaching. But if you want to be on fire for Jesus and have relationships that help you do that, number two is not enough. So I'll talk about a third level. And again, this is only for people who, who really want it in terms of fellowship. But if you want fellowship that pushes you, I'm going to just call this cell plus. I don't know why. I just made that up. Probably have to change it at some point. It doesn't really matter. It's just part of a message, just a point. But these are some of the things. I'm not, this isn't even exhaustive. I, I don't know everything there is to know about this for sure. But if you want to have fellowship with a group of believers that actually pushes you to be hot, it's not just learning, but you could be stale as a two-week-old bowl of milk. If you want fellowship that pu pushes you to be fresh with Jesus every week, then what you need is fellowship with a group of people where you have total vulnerability where you have submission to each other. By the way, total vulnerability means, you know what happens in many small groups? I'm not saying here. I'm not saying your small group. You know what happens in many small groups? Do you have anything to confess? Um, yeah, I'm just not trusting God enough. You ever been in one of those? Wow, that's a bombshell. <laughs> I'm not trusting God enough. You know what? I got a lot of stress at work. Okay, well, fine. Okay, let's pray for you. Okay. You know what? That does not, for most of us, 99.99999% of us, our sins go a lot deeper than I'm not trusting God enough. But we're too afraid to say what we're really thinking about. Isn't it true? Too afraid to say, hey, I've got thoughts about one of the ladies at work that I shouldn't have. Right? And you get specific. I'm not saying specific, but you know what I mean. But you get specific about your sin. Or you say, I'll, I'll tell you, you want to hear what I did to my husband this week? And you get specific with that. You want to hear the words I said this last week in my head when this happened? You want to hear where I'm at? You want to hear where I'm at? I haven't had my devotions in three weeks because I feel mad at God for this situation in my life. And you get real. That's what I mean by total vulnerability. Where the most shameful, embarrassing things that you're scared of, you actually have a group of people you trust enough that you can say those things to them, not the 
not the, you know, you go to the bottom of the real stuff you're dealing with, not up here, I'm just not trusting God enough, I'm feeling a little stressed at work. That's not going to get you anywhere. Total vulnerability. And do you have a group of people in your life that you can trust that much? It takes a while to build up to that kind of trust. You don't just do that in a week. But do you have a group of people who want to go to that level? And do you want to go to that level? Submission to each other. This is not something you can drag someone into. Nobody can make me. Nobody can make me be vulnerable with another person. I have to want it. And I know there's lots of, there's lots of women out there who drag their, their men to, to sell. And I, I love, ladies, I love. I love your desire for your husband to follow Jesus. But you can drag a horse to water, but you cannot make him drink. And you can drag him to sell. And how, what good is that doing for him or the sell? Okay, let him watch football. At least he'll be happy in his carnality, okay? <laughs> pray for him like crazy. Fast and pray. But, but dragging him into things, he doesn't have to. You can't make him do these things. You know, yesterday I, I sent off, uh, we have uh, some pastors. We just started these because you know what? You think, oh, you don't, you don't have to do any of this stuff because you're a pastor. You just naturally feel, I'm a human being just like you. I desperately need people in my life like this to spur me on. We have, we've started a couple pastor cells now here. We've just, just, just started them because we just crave this kind of thing. So yesterday I'm doing message prep early on Saturday morning. I sent it off, off an email to my guys because I said, because one of my weekly action steps, I said one of the things I'm trying to grow in Saturday mornings, these are some of my temptations when I'm doing message prep on a Saturday morning. And I sent off an email. I had guys praying for me because I'm real with them. But I, that has to be me submitting to them. I, I, nobody makes me do that. I have to want that for this to work. I have to want that for this to work. Weekly action steps. could be regular action steps. It doesn't need to be weekly. Uh, but, you know, regularly where you get together in a group and you say, this is what I'm working on this week. I have a practical step I'm taking this week. Wake up. Remember, wake up is something you do. I have a practical step I'm taking this week. Would you guys hold me accountable? This is something I'm trying to do this week. could be about anything but I'm trying to grow in this area. And every week, we're actually doing something to grow. Can you imagine if we all had those kinds of friends who would push us every week? Just one thing. It's not complicated. You can't do more than one thing. But one thing you're doing this week to grow, and you had friends who were pushing you to grow in Jesus? Wow. And our whole purpose is to push each other weekly to push closer to God. You know, when you come into a group like that, you don't come together to do a Bible study, as good as that are. Bible studies are awesome. By the way, I'm not down on Bible studies. But you know, a group like this, you don't come together to do a Bible study or watch a video. You know why? First question you ask in a group like this when you get together is how many times did you have your devotions this week? Because you can come and throw in a video and I can learn something and feel great. But again, I'm as I'm stale as a two-week-old bowl of milk because I haven't, I haven't touched the Word of God myself and what I really need is not to learn something here from a video. What I really need is to be walking with Jesus all week long. And the reason I get together with you guys is so you can push me to walk with Jesus the rest of the week. So there's no hiding when you have a group and you get together and it's like, how many times do you have your devotions this week? And you've got to honestly say. And when it comes to, well, what do you discuss? I'll tell you what we discuss. You open up your journal and you share from what the Lord is speaking to you that week. What you're doing is you're a group of people together trying to keep each other fresh in Jesus trying to keep, keep each other passionate for Jesus. That's fellowship. Now, again, I have no criticism for numbers one or two. It's wonderful to have fellowship, and it's wonderful to have fellowship and teaching and study, both wonderful. But if you want to be red hot for Jesus, there's another level we need. 
And maybe you have the people in your life you can do that with right now, or maybe it's something you're praying towards and you're moving towards. I don't know. But the, but the thing is, if you want to be hot for Jesus, that's what we need to help us be hot. We need each other. Well, Jesus says this in verse 6. He finishes, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why don't you bow your heads with me and close your eyes. I wonder what the Spirit is saying to you today. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you today? The Holy Spirit believes that you can wake up. The Holy Spirit believes that you can grow in your walk with him and he is right there waiting to to help you. All he's asking you to do today is take one step. He says, if you show me you're you're real, if you show me your commitment is real and you are willing to do something this week, and he says, I'm going to grow you. So I wonder what wake-up step is Jesus talking to you about today? Or maybe you're here today and he's just encouraging you. He's saying, keep going. But what prompting is he giving you today? What nudge? What practical nudge is he giving you today and saying, just let's do something together? Thank you, Jesus, that you never ask us to do anything you won't empower us also to do. We want to grow in you. Lord, and we want to grow in fellowship. We're not going to go straight to level three fellowship. It takes a while to get there as a church and as people. But put that as a goal in front of us that we can reach towards, that we can strive towards. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen.